don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 9. And today we're doing something a little bit different. And the first of what I think will end up being a series that kind of unfolds over however many months we keep doing this. Uh, we're going to do what we're calling Auteur Theory, Anthropocene's Auteur Theory, mm-hmm. Volume 1, and today we're talking about Clint Eastwood. Um, specifically, we're going to talk about the, the, the later Eastwood, but I, focusing... I, I feel like it's probably important to uh, let people know that that's a joke. The auteur theory. The, uh, yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, we're not like the way you were saying that. Sounded like we thought we were like introducing a new theory. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a completely sort of tongue in cheek way of, of using that term. Yes. Um, and when we do this, we're going to look at directors that are. It's sort of a joke, but at the same time, there are sort of important things to notice in their films. Um, when we do it, it'll probably be with directors that have had a lot of success with their films um, for reasons that are kind of unknown or, well, for reasons that are debatable. So when we're talking about Eastwood, we're going to be focusing mainly on the later movies. So specifically like Gran Torino, American Sniper, uh, the 1517 to Paris, and The Mule a little bit. Um, So it's important to, to say that because that's leaving out a lot of his films that are actually good and sort of stand up stand the test of time like Unforgiven we both agree Unforgiven is is a uh, a very watchable and very uh, kind of kind of intellectual western in a way yeah Um, the whole idea of revenge not being all it's cracked up to be and and all that sort of stuff Mm. Um, and also Million Dollar Baby which I don't love but was a big movie won Best Picture and, and a lot of people criticized it for its uh, liberal leanings. Uh, seriously, of uh, the mercy killing, you know, euthanasia oh, issue. The euthanasia issue. Yeah. Um, With their video games. And then uh, Mystic River, which is my personal favorite, I think, of his. Um, even though I haven't seen it in a few years, so if it's problematic in some way, don't cancel me. Yeah, uh, the sequel to Mystic Pizza. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, went darker with the sequel. Um, and then he's also made a bunch of shit, like The Trouble with the Curve. and uh, I didn't see Jersey Boys. That was him, right? Yeah. Um, he's done a lot of stuff that you wouldn't I remember, necessarily expect. I remember liking Blood Work in, Blood in Work. high school. And it, it was just like a... You know, there was really nothing to it, as I recall. It was just like a kind of a thriller... It probably sucks. Uh, <laughs> but in high school, you're like, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> this is fine. I remember seeing it around the same time I saw Murder by Numbers, which for uh, years I thought was like a good movie. And then I saw it as an adult and I was like, this is awful. Who's the Who's the star of that? Uh, it's Sandra Bullock, Sandra Bullock Ryan Gosling, yeah. and Michael Pitt, who I, I really like Michael, Michael Pitt. Michael Pitt, yeah, who, who hasn't done anything in a while or anything big in a while. Yeah, he was, he was great, in yeah. Boardwalk Empire. Funny Games. Funny Games. Great, yeah. um, Finding Force. Gus yeah. Van Sant's Last Days. Oh, he's yeah. Cobain, he's basically. Cobain, yeah. Um, he, he's kind of weird. Like, he does a... 
or had like a real life band that just sounded like Nirvana. He was basically doing a Kurt Cobain impression. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, he was in that uh, the Dreamers. I don't think I ever saw that. Um, I forget the director's name. The guy who did Last Tango in Paris. Uh, did it have a lot of like food sex? Uh, not a lot, but some. They had a lot of like incest themes going oh, on, but I'm in. Oh man. Um, yeah. So Clint Eastwood, um, and I guess we'll just sort of. Uh, well, it, it's worth saying that all these movies were highly successful. Um, I mean, not just you know Million Dollar Baby, but the movies we're talking about today that we do not have a very positive opinion of. Um, were box office hits. I mean, American Sniper was huge, both domestically and overseas. How how, how was the fifteen seventeen to Paris? That was probably the least successful of them. I you know what? That's the one I didn't look at just because I hated it so much. I didn't want to think about it anymore. I think we saw the Rotten Tomatoes was like in the twenties. Yeah, uh, which for an Eastwood film is pretty low. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's clearly the most shoddily made. It, oh, yeah. It's just not up to par in terms of like even technical things. So it's also the one, even in a group with American Sniper, is the one that's kind of most clearly propagandistic, right, which right. is saying. And so, something. and so is arguably not the most dangerous because it's so dumb. I mean, because it's so <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious. Um, American Sniper, oh yeah, I would say is, is definitely more dangerous. Oh. Um, but even the Mule, which is like, who the fuck saw the Mule? It made. You know, over a hundred million dollars, like made its budget back in spades. Um, John so, Mulaney and Pete Davidson sold the meal. Yeah, and that, and you know, SNL does a lot of things that uh, kind of suck, but that was not one of them. No, that, um, that was actually pretty good. Talking about him, um, Eastwood's two threesomes. Um, <laughs> and uh, full disclosure, I have not seen the Mule. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Uh, I watched five movies this week, but that was not one of them. Yeah, and I, I did watch it, but I will say you're not missing a whole lot. Although, I'll also say that of these kind of four that we're focusing on, that one's probably my favorite. That one's probably the most, for me, was the most watchable. Uh, and not you don't end up rooting for the, the Earl, for the old guy. Um, but it is, it's kind of a nice little kind of thriller, you know, government drug bust movie. Um, it has issues, of course, but it, it's nowhere near as flagrant as these other films. I'm I'm glad to hear that because we were we were talking earlier and I was saying it would be a it would be a real shame for I mean Eastwood's getting up there he's what like 88 now yeah it would be a real shame for someone who made some admittedly you know <clears throat> classics Unforgiven especially. To go out on the fifteen seventeen to Paris, <laughs> yes, that's uh, it's just that's just no good. So well, let's start off with with Gran Torino, which I have seen but not for a while, and you rewatched it. For, yeah, that for one the... I did. I did see, um, and yeah, that one is a a a well made film in terms of you know technically, which. Which I thought we could assume with Clint Eastwood, uh, but the fifteen seventeen to Paris uh, suggests otherwise. But yeah, Gran Torino. I saw it when it came out, and I remember thinking, I guess I was like twenty or so when I saw it, and I remember thinking that 
the people who thought it was racist are mistaking the character's racism for the film's racism. You know what I'm saying? It's like, just because the, a character you show is, you know, putting forth racist ideas doesn't mean the film or the filmmakers are, you know, putting forth racist ideas. Usually, if, if they do that, they're doing that to subvert those ideas. Um, unless you're Steve Bannon or something. Um, but but watching it now, you see that you have this sort of surface-level racism of Walt, you know, saying every offensive slur. I mean, some, some I had never even heard of. The, the most <laughs> offensive, and I hesitate to even say it, and I'm quoting here, he says the term, I'd never heard it before, zipperhead. Um, yeah. I'd never heard that, and I looked it up, and it was a reference to uh, the Korean War when Korean people would be sort of run over by tanks and the imprint of the tire tread on their bodies, uh, on their heads, uh, is is where that term came from. Uh, And it's just sort of casually used in this movie uh, in a joking way. And again... It's, it's the character's racism. And so, obviously, we see Walt go through this kind of mild transformation. Um, but what I notice is that it's like this sort of surface-level transformation from racist to not racist, I guess, or more, more open-minded, is used to obscure the film's racism. Um, so, so you're thinking like, oh, if the sort of explicit plot of a movie is about the main character's uh, growth out of a clearly, deeply racist place, uh, surely that movie, you know, that's the only, surely that movie is not succumb to more systemic, deeper levels of racism, but, but of course it does. Uh, and I think you see that uh, primarily through the emphasis on property. I mean, that that's like one of the lines that uh, everyone remembers from Gran Torino's "Get off my lawn," which is you know, <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's really interesting that this movie came out um, before <clears throat> um, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. It would not have come out after, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, when you, I mean, just the the whole uh, don't extend your ground neighbor, neighborhood watch, yeah. and, and Walt sort of comes to function as this neighborhood guardian. But what I was saying before is that the neighborhood is sort of a microcosm of the world you see, and um, the lawns come to represent the nations and so you see Walt um, you know clearly has the American flag flying proudly he's espousing traditional American values self-reliance all these things Um, interestingly to connect it to our other uh, other uh, ideas about other films the 
wife, the woman, has been imaginatively expelled once again. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, any, anyway, you see, you see Walt's relation to the other people in his neighborhood uh, the way you might see America's relations to other nations. Um, after he befriends the Korean boy next door, he commissions him, he hires him to fix up these other nations, these other uh, lawns that he says he's you know sick of looking at. They're they're in disrepair, and so you get this you know uh, nation building comes to mind. Uh, any, anyway it's I don't know how conscious that is like in the screenplay or whatever but it's it's hard not to see it that way you've got traditional traditional American values you've got uh, Eastwood sort of what, what, what he does in a lot of movies is he he pays lip service to sort of multicultural respect um, but he only respects cultures that respect him and America. And I think you see that. We didn't, haven't even mentioned this film yet. Uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. Um, I didn't have not seen Flags of Our Fathers, but Letters from Iwo Jima, which you always hear is like so open-minded because it you know, shows the, the other perspective, not just the American perspective. Um, but it's because of that is arguably more problematic. Uh, because, you know, the people who are the enemies that are worth respecting are the enemies that love America or share the same <laughs> ideals as America. And I think yeah. you definitely see that in uh, American Sniper. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. So, uh, in, in general, I, like I said, I think American Sniper, or I'm sorry, uh, Gran Torino pays a sort of lip service or, or has a sort of superficial um, narrative arc of, okay, we're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about um, um, traditional American values uh, and their relationship to contemporary sort of hip issues of race. And and obviously the old guy has, has something to contribute to this discourse. Um, but that just sort of obscures this this more deeply rooted, unquestioned assumption as uh, of America as you know the shining city on the hill, setting the example for every everyone else, and and this is a perspective that you see in you see it in uh, letters from Iwo Jima, you see it in uh, Gran Torino, you see it in. American Sniper and the fifteen seventeen to Paris as well. So, in uh, Gran Torino, uh, also has all those kinds of markers of sort of the. It always kind of remind me of like the dying parts of the Rust Belt, um, and he's sort of the last holdout in this neighborhood where it's all these immigrants and you know these uh, uh, foreclosed upon houses that are in disrepair. And so, you know, he, he's got his perfectly manicured lawn. He, he's got his, you know, looked-after house. He's got his car, of course, which is, you know, just good old-fashioned American muscle. Um, 
and his big American flag flying. He only drinks PBR. <laughs> Hell yeah. Just that, that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it's very much, he's kind of the all-American boomer grandpa who, you know, fought in Korea and served his country and came back and worked a nine-to-five and loved his wife and had a dog and all that sort of um, hokey American crap that we see come up again in a movie like The Mule. But there's also that weird thing he has where family is a big deal in these films, in all of them. Um, but it always seems like the father figure is always in turmoil in some way. Like they're either estranged from the family or they're not paying as much attention to the family as they should. Um, this you know comes up again and again with like uh, Chris Kyle and American Sniper and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in Gran Torino, like his kids are fighting over who gets the house mm-hmm. um, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and he and he says at the end like he when he's confessing to the priest, he says, "I never never really knew my children." Yeah, it's one of his great sort of regrets. And it, that is one of the weird things. It's like it has its issues it's kind of like paternalistic issues but that that's one of the more benign things about Eastwood the movies I think is this this focus on the family and like give your family your attention and your support mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff that's one of those sort of quote unquote American values that he's always harping on in his films that's not and that and, and one of the one of the best aspects of American Sniper is the attention it gives to um the character Sienna Miller plays Chris Kyle's wife, yeah. um, and and she is uh, sort of the voice of of reason and togetherness, and you know she we we are made to agree with her, and she is not like you see in the fifteen seventeen to Paris like some archetype of American housewife. You know she's uh, she's an individual in in uh, American Sniper, and we see her suffering um, and and the pain that the estrangement yeah. causes in her life. Obviously, like I said, in the fifteen seventeen to Paris, it's <laughs> yeah, a totally it different thing. Um, but it's one of the few movies that we've discussed where the woman is not first of all expelled you know just just gone from the narrative but not only that she is given a voice uh, and and that voice is not silenced or or actively refuted by the film um now don't get me wrong this is uh, i'm not in any way suggesting that american <laughs> no, no. sniper is a feminist film but all i'm saying is at least you get to hear what she says and thinks yeah, and yeah. it's not it's not argued against by the by the by other rhetoric no she's she's right yeah she's always right and and even um, we talked about this a little bit before but I will say that I don't think and I I don't want to fault Sienna Miller for this but I feel like that character is just not like the acting is all sort of melodramatic like when the scene where she's leaving the, the hospital and calls him to tell him that it's a boy and then the fight breaks out and she's like screaming in the middle of this crowd of people outside the hospital that's very just not a good scene in my opinion um, and I don't know I don't know if as I was watching them I'm like is this like a narrative convention or like a, a shortcut or do soldiers talk on their I, cell phones I, to their wives in, in combat in battle like 
I feel like that's not... And they, they reference it in the movie when he pulls out the phone and they're like, oh, so you're big time now or whatever. But at the same time, I feel like that that can't be a common thing. I, I'm going to like look into that. Uh, but that, I mean, that, that definitely stuck out to me too, but that aside, like when they meet in the bar and we talked about this a little bit before is, um, she seems to have some sort of, she has kind of an edge to her, right? She kind of shrugs off the one, the one Navy SEAL who like took off his wedding ring. She's like, I saw you take off your ring. And, and then he comes up and even though she has this kind of agency and she seems very strong willed, Chris Kyle wins her over seemingly with his, um, in the earnest way in which he explains why he wants to serve, mm-hmm. which she says, oh, what did you need, money or something? And he says, no, I just think this is the greatest country in the world, and I want to defend it. And she's kind of taken aback, like, oh, you're the real deal. You're G.I. Joe, American hero. Right. And uh, he sort of guilts her. It's like he, he makes <laughs> like, her don't feel, you feel like an asshole for assuming that, yeah. Um, and, and then after that, she kind of loses that almost... She's almost like a little edgy in that moment but then she loses it and he immediately knocks her up it even kind of make, makes reference to it in the movie of she's like oh you knock me up and then you leave and go overseas like it was this your whole plan all along um, so you do hear her voice but it's always kind of in reference and like this movie would not pass the Bechdel test right <laughs> like it's always kind of in reference to him um, in his service and when you're going to come back and help me raise the kids which is it makes a lot of sense because that's shitty to you know spend you know, we learn in the movies he, in the movie that he spent like a thousand days in Iraq, so that's what like over three years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can imagine being more than a little bit fed up with that, um, especially going back for like a fourth tour and all that sort of shit. Um, so she's not a perfect character by any means, but like you're saying, it's it's nice that she has a voice, and when she does speak, it's not like, oh, get a load of this crazy broad. Like, no, she's. Right, she's in standing and, on and holy she, ground, and she says it. She is the uh, sort of uh, moral center of it. Uh, you know, she says, "Do you ever think about the, uh, you know, what's going on on the other side of the gun? Like, you know, who you're pointing the gun at?" And he gives this little spiel about how oh, I don't think about. It. I'm just hoping to do my job when the time comes. It's like it's weird how he, his his tone doesn't change from his wife to like his commanding officer. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but but my point is, she is the one saying that to him. And then later in the film, she says, "You know, he's like I just want to protect my country or something." And she says, "That's bullshit." <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is about you. You know, and it. We, like we were saying earlier, we, I get the feeling that I'd be interested to know like who the screenwriter is who you know, adapted the book that this is based on. And I'd love to see the original script uh, because there's so much, there's, there's several moments that start to hint at some very interesting elements of this story. Uh, and I would I would go so far as to say as realities of this story that the movie, like I said, only hints at and then and then sort of reengages in the sort of nationalistic, hyper patriotic propaganda yeah. that, that so much of the movie is. Uh, but there are moments. I, I truly the uh, scene after his final tour where he's sitting in the bar and he's home. 
and has not called his wife and kids. And he's just sitting there drinking beer. And his wife calls and says, you know, she thinks he's in another country and finds out that he's home. And he just sort of breaks down. That, that was, that's a powerful scene. Yeah. Uh, and so the movie starts to get into these, these things, but it, it, it just sort of glosses over the sort of uh, huge issue of, of post-traumatic stress and, you know, reorientation into civilian life. Uh, that the whole movie, I, I, it's like I almost wish the whole movie was about that. And there, yeah. and there needs to be uh, more about that. This, look up the statistics on veteran suicide. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. It sounds like an exaggeration. Uh, so anyway, the movie sort of, you know, hints at, at, at interesting topics but never fully explores them it, it, it's it, it's almost like the movie's kind of conflicted it doesn't know what it really wants to be about is it this sort of saving private Ryan sort of reality of war nitty gritty thing is it about is it this nationalistic hero worship like I think when the movie came out Seth Rogen tweeted like oh uh, American Sniper is the film within the film in uh Inglorious Bastards, you know, it's that sort of propaganda piece, um, or is it this domestic drama uh, about the uh, harsh realities of post-traumatic stress? And it tries to be a little bit of everything, and then, uh, therefore is none of those things, and, and therefore is kind of none of those things. And, and then uh, you brought this up earlier. Another thing it tries to be is this. Um, almost like thriller horror type thing where it, it it you know has this bad guy called the butcher when they're in Iraq yeah. you know and then it's like this sort of cat and mouse you know the Mustafa chasing down the bad guy thing and that's maybe the, the most problematic aspect of the yeah, movie they yeah. call him Mustafa and I was like that's probably because that's his name uh, <laughs> but I read some Clint Eastwood quotes about the film and he was very adamant that this is a film about how veterans aren't taken care of when they come home and how they deal with PTSD and they, they need to, a better support system uh, beyond just the VA and stuff like that. Um, but like you're saying, that's a very kind of, that's not even a third of the film, right? Um, and so we end up, you know, at the end with Chris Kyle, uh, supporting his fellow veterans and spending time with them and, and all that sort of stuff, which is all great. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to, the, the man did a lot of terrible things. That wasn't one of them. Um, and so T. Freese would to say that it, it just glosses over three fourths of the movie, if not more, where, um, the prevailing attitude toward all Iraqis is they're savages and not just, not only does, Chris say that, but everybody he meets, it's the consensus. Like, these people are savages. No one has a contrary opinion about that. Um, the the use of the character of the butcher, which who was invented for the film, um, who at one point literally uh, drills into a little boy's skull with a power drill to, to murder him in front of his family. Yeah, like it's... Um, it's like something on a saw or something, you know? Yeah, it's just... So, and when... 
to bring it back to to views of the environment when when they're in Iraq and they're talking about it, all they talk about is the sand and the dirt. They call it like a shithole. They say it just smells like shit and it's just awful. Um, and that, like so much with the movie, of just completely ignores all all the prelude all the prelude that led up to that, which is it looks like that because it's a fucking war zone because the the United States has invaded and bombed the shit out of it. That's why I'm sure you know the city didn't look this way before we bombed the everyone fuck out of it and invaded it. Um, right. And I think I think that's a good place to sort of backtrack a little bit and say it, it might seem a little bit strange to be talking about these war war films and hyper patriotic films on a on a podcast that's mostly been about environmental concerns um, but I don't think the issues of hyper patriotism and and environmental collapse are separable because uh the U.S. military is one of the most, uh, I mean, it's culturally destructive. You see that you, you see that in American Sniper, both in American culture, in the soldiers' return, return home, and you see it, obviously, even more so uh, with its interventionist strategies abroad. Um, but it's also naturally destructive. Um, you know, you just see the, the landscapes and in uh, American Sniper are just like they say in, in uh, Mother it's just it's setting for this nationalistic drama to unfold yeah um, we spend so much time in plywood buildings like plywood military buildings right right but uh, um, in uh, This Changes Everything uh, Naomi Klein she says uh, in 2011 the Department of Defense released at minimum, 56.6 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere, more than the U.S.-based operations of ExxonMobil and Shell combined. So, if all that's just to say, any movie that is primarily sort of an instrument to bolster. Um, sort of cultural respect for the American military uh, and you know it, it's basically one big hoorah uh, all, all these movies um, any movie that does that there are environmental implications for that because you are supporting and bolstering the most environmentally and culturally I think destructive forces ever to exist on the planet yeah and the, the United States military is the largest consumer of fossil fuels in the country, if not in the world. Um, I mean, just look at our defense budget um, and how much of that goes toward buying uh, buying and expending fossil fuels. And they know it. Yeah, and, they, and, <laughs> and, and it's okay. It, it, right. It's a thing where um, the military is doing it, therefore it's kind of all is forgiven. Like, oh, well, they must need it for something, that kind of thing. Right. Sort of like in uh, Independence Day where uh, Judd Hirsch is like, Oh, do you really think they were spending five thousand dollars on a toilet seat? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, different kind of idea, but that's what makes me think of. That's our. I think you said that's our next auteur. Yeah, uh, probably rolling rolling Roland Emmerich with uh, Independence Day and Day After Tomorrow. What um, else did he do? I don't know. I, yeah, I'd, I'd have to ten thousand BC maybe. Maybe. 
Um, who knows? I don't think anybody knows who directed that. It just fell out of the sky, fully formed. Um, but Amitabh Ghost talks about this link between... Um, well, uh, now a lot of writers, I think uh, Andreas Malm does this too, but the link between military adventures, quote-unquote, and um, expansion of, of uh, fossil fuels. And Ghost even traces it all the way back to the first use of a steamship in warfare, which is the British in the, um, the Opium War, and how that ties together, um, you know, uh, climate change with war, with uh, colonialism and all these overlapping systems. And in uh, The Great Derangement, he talks about the, the U.S. Defense Department, how that's the one sort of area of Washington that, or at least was, I don't know if it's true anymore, taking climate change seriously because it may create some sort of security threat. And if that's the case, then of course the military hops right on it. And he even has a quote from a, a secretary of state at the time, Colin Powell said the only department in Washington that is clearly and completely seized with the idea that climate change is real is the department of defense. And because of that, they invest in renewable energy. They invest in biofuels, all that sort of stuff. Um, says between 2006 and 2009, its investments in this sector, meaning renewable energy, rose by 200% to over a billion dollars and is expected to go up to $10 billion by 2030. All this has been done in such a way as to bypass the, the contentious debates of the public sphere. So they're able to do it because the military has unlimited spending power, unlimited power to invest in these things. Um, and they're able to do it above the debate of just the base debate in American culture, which is, is climate change even a thing? And you have a, a, a president denying it, bolstering a, a government and a Department of Defense that is so on board that it's what it's increasing by 200%, its budget by 200%, which yeah. this is just a fucking, just a Rubik's Cube. I don't know who can figure this out, the, the politics of that, where you have a a you know a populous a skeptical but maybe sort of unmade up mind populous and then you have a cartoon president <laughs> who will say fucking anything and then you ha- uh, but it but has come down on the side of denial and then um, and so he's in charge of a government that is like a hundred percent sure it's real and it's taken very practical steps or yeah. not that, well not just the not the government that. but specifically the sort of military industrial complex part of it right which is you know for our benefit for the benefit of our quote-unquote security it's in our best interest if we invest in these things um and it makes sense that they know it's real because they're the ones that are perpetuating it. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's and it, when the shit hits the fan and you know climate refugees are at the border that's who will it's, be sent to deal with it. And it's the same way, uh, you know, ExxonMobil's been on the sort of cutting edge of yeah. climate research for 40 years now. And people take that at complete face value and are like, oh, well, they're trying. They're trying to do the right thing and just completely ignore. They want to control the information. They want to be on the cutting edge so they can control the information and therefore the conversation that stems from the information. Well, also they want to, when you, you know, when... 10 years or whatever hopefully if we can even do that when you go to when you go to buy your solar panels they want you to be buying exxon solar panels right they want you to be stopping at the exxon charging station or whatever 
Um, and it's just this really perverse... Well, they put you in a, uh, a refugee cage. They want it to be an Exxon Mobil <laughs> Exxon refugee Mobil, cage. Mobile cage with wheels on it so you can keep working, doing whatever. Um, and it just kind of it just makes your head spin when you think about that kind of stuff. And it's it sort of, it's also perverse that when I think about it, it kind of makes me feel like strangely hopeful that if, if renewable energy um, and all that, all the, the good stuff that we have to have becomes what is in demand, then what, what's, who's to say that these companies don't turn and say, okay, well now we make solar panels. Now we make biofuels. And they end up doing the right thing on well, accident because well, of some weird market. That becomes almost libertarian of like the market will sort it out. Exactly, because I remember, what, I think it's in Food Inc. where a representative for Walmart is saying, hey, if, uh, if the people want organic, Walmart's going to get organic. Yeah. And no, what that means is if the people want organic, Walmart is going to buy the stickers that say organic. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They're going to tweak the rules to make sure they're meeting the minimum guideline. Right. And they're, and they're going to make it seem like that's what they're doing. Um, and so I think uh, that logic probably applies to, you know, to fossil fuel based. <clears throat> but to just bring it back to the this idea of the military, since it's plays such a big part in all of these movies, really, because even in the mule, um, Earl, the character, is basically is a Korean War veteran. I, f- I feel like any time... Uh, in the mule he is? Yeah. Oh. He, he br- Eastwood brought that back. Yeah. <laughs> Real life uh, Korean War veteran, right? Clint Eastwood. Um, he, he's a big fan of playing Korean War veterans. I, I did not know that, actually. Yeah. He even has the license plate that says Korean War veteran on his fancy truck. That it, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but I want to talk about this book. It's called uh, Invisible War, The Culture of War in 21st Century America. It's a collection edited by John Simons and John Lewis. Oh, he's probably French. John Louis Lacate, I think. And the, what matters is that it's talking about this idea that the invisibility, and this is in in slash visibility of war. And I just thought the way it describes it um, plays into, especially American Sniper, but can be used in some of these other movies. Um, this is what we call the paradox of the invisibility of war entails that war is simultaneously seen and unseen, both visible and invisible at once. One of the registers in which invisibility occurs is displacement. Sites of the wars overseas are displaced onto the signs of the war on terror at home. Civilian patriots act by dutifully removing their shoes at airport security, but there is nothing that inclines them to picture the boots on the ground at war thousands of miles away. Awareness of and anxieties about such persistent and repeated military conflict have been not only displaced, but also normalized in public discourse about mass shootings, immigration, police brutality, the carceral state, and the list goes on. For example, does the United States need a wall on the Mexican border to keep immigrants out or because terrorists might sneak in? The two possibilities become conflated in demands to secure the borders. Immigrants become potential terrorists, and domestic terrorists are perceived as immigrants who should have been screened out before admission. It becomes normal to perceive and respond to violence and threats at home in articulation with the war on terror, such that in an oblique, displaced way, the wars being fought overseas are visible in militarized police for uh, police facing often African-American protesters at home or when college campuses buy military equipment at a discount just in case of an active shooter incident. Um, you know, it goes on in that same kind of vein, but that's enough. Um, but just talking about 
these things that we see play out of the how war and the American military machine is at once very present in our society, but also simultaneously kind of hidden. This is like um, having the jet flyovers before baseball games, or um, it says the the militarization of the police, which is you know the rise of the warrior cop and. A few days ago, my wife and I were in a taco shop, and these two police officers walked in. They were in full, like, bulletproof vest gear with, like, a gun on their hip, uh, you know, big police written across their chest. They're in a fucking taco shop. And like, that's, and if you've ever, if you ever go overseas, you see that's fucking standard operating procedure at, at any sort of airport or bus station. You see guys in the berets with automatic weapons ready to fucking go. And it's just... I remember before I moved to Tennessee when I was still living in uh, in it's the small college town of Richmond, Kentucky. The police bought I, I don't know what the technical term for the vehicle is, but it's basically a fucking tank, and we're like driving it down Main Street one day to like test it out, I guess. Um, and it's just people don't realize quite how how heavy the boot on the back of their neck is. I think. Um, and that's what that you know that can segue us right into American Sniper because that movie is just packed to the gills. We've already been talking about it with uh, just this troop warship. You were talking about when you originally saw it in theaters. There was this kind of this air of of sort Reverence. of yeah, just yeah. like oh this and sainted Chris Kyle. And, and I have I have to be honest, like I I think there's in, in, I watched it this morning again, and I think. Like I said earlier, there are moments in this movie that hint at the real, the real problems of war and issues of trauma, and and I think the optimistic side of me, which is a very small side of me, wants to say people sort of pick up on these things sort of unconsciously and that is where that air of reverence comes from really though their ideology of you know their nationalistic ideology is probably be, being stroked and bolstered in some way and and so they think oh this is this is what it's about um, but yeah I, I saw it in the theater and it was everyone was just sort of sobered uh, and I, I don't know if it was, like I said, I don't know if it's out of their contemplation of the place of war in the world, or if it's out of, goddamn, this guy's an American fucking hero. Look yeah. at him fucking go. Yeah. Look at him air hole those hodgies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because parts of the movie look like fucking Call of Duty. Like, he's just running around with his his M4 or whatever just you know blowing people away yeah and it's it's sort of contextless like it's just oh insert it's like the script said insert war violence here you know yeah and there's a scene where he he like lays in his spot for so long that he like pisses on the floor and all that and they come and uh they're like how many did you get and he's like, I got eight, but they, they drug two of them off or whatever. And they're like, well, well, damn, that might be a record. And he's like, well, we still lost one of ours. Yeah. It's sort of that thing where he's like, I'll kill as many as it takes if I can stop one Marine from dying. Because we learned that the biggest sin of the movie, the biggest sin in Clint Eastwood's world is that you cl- you kill a Marine. 
Right. Like killing a Marine is the worst possible because thing an American life is inherently more valuable than an Iraqi life or any any other you know any other nationality's life. Yeah, that, he, that is that is what the movie suggests. Absolutely. And that is just what I mean. You ask just nine out of ten people on the street, and they'll say. Even if they, even if you ask them and they don't say it, they, on some level, believe it. Yeah. And it's and it's so funny that so many of the the kind of fuck ups, procedural fuck ups, in in the war are completely Chris Kyle's fault. So they're they're out on patrol and the one guy gets shot, and they come back and they're like, "We're gonna go back out. We're gonna get him." And because they do that, the other guy gets killed. <laughs> and it's sort of funny of like, "Well, you're really just bad at this. Like you're you're good as long as you can sit still and kill people that don't know you're there. But when you're actually like out doing things." Um, Right, yes, yeah. and that's. I think it was. I think it was Michael Moore when this movie came out who sort of put forth the the idea that within certain you know certain people's idea of like military culture, snipers are are not the most highly regarded because they're not they're not as vulnerable as some of the other soldiers and, and you see the movie sort of he wants to get down yeah he, he wants to the be house he wants to be boots on the ground but um, something you said about the uh, oh you're talking about airports reminded me of the uh, rap group sweatshop boys and uh, the line in I can't remember what the song's called shoes off what's it called it's just called shoes off shoes off yeah uh, where Riz Ahmed and what's what's the guy's Heems. name? Heems. 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 Um, from Das they're, Racist. They're, yeah, from Das Racist. They're talking about all the different places that they have to take their shoes off yeah. uh, because of their brown skin. And uh, Riz, in Riz Ahmed's uh, verse, he specifically mentions American Sniper. He says... Uh, I couldn't talk him. I couldn't talk him out of. What does he say? I couldn't talk him out of it if I tried to. He's already seen American Sniper. Yeah, yeah. And that's a part of their um, a couple of songs there is where they talk about uh, people, specifically Muslims, being radicalized by things like American Sniper and these really like dehumanizing views. Like you're saying, you know, asking people, do you think an Iraqi life is worth the same as an American life? And they'll just be like, no, of course not. Um, and it's definitely the, the view that the film has. I watched it uh, with my wife, who is from Syria, and she had seen parts of it before, and this first time she'd watched it all the way through, and getting her viewpoint was useful because, uh, so for instance, we're watching the scene when uh, they bust into the, the dude's apartment and they're looking for information, and it, he's like, oh, you can come have dinner with me, and everyone's welcome at my table and, and she stopped and she's like wow either we can be heartless evil terrorists or we can be completely welcoming it's like nothing in between we have to be completely one way or the other right and it's interesting they bust into the home earlier mm-hmm. and the, the guy says this, like, this is my home what are you doing here and I think it's Chris Kyle the, the character Chris Kyle says I don't give a fuck if this is your home this is a war zone yeah yeah um, which it says all you need to know about American foreign policy. Um, and then what, what's so awful 
great and awful about that scene uh, is that it turns out that the guy's just being hospitable because he is a terrorist and he's storing weapons and right. he's only being hospitable so he can deceive them. Right, his kindness is a is a tool of deception. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're literally the only quote-unquote positive representation of a Middle Eastern person is the translator. And that's that's what the movie just absolutely cannot do. Just categorically, given its status as this propaganda thing, it cannot humanize and by that I mean tell the truth about the reality which is that I mean a huge majority of the people in Iraq are going about their daily business yeah they do trying not. to support their family like you, you talk about Eastwood's emphasis on family I wish he could see that that is <laughs> yeah. that is you know, 99% of the world's concern is their own family. And they have no feelings of connection with the political yeah. uh, situation or, or anything like that. And so I wish I wish he could apply that logic to, to the families of other nationalities because, God damn, that's just, there's just no nuance to it at all. No, it's a th- the thing of being in a, an ac- accident of birth and geography and Americans take it, well at least the hyper patriot patriotic ones take being born in America as like winning the lottery right well, um, it's 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 worse than that it's not that they won the lottery it's that they made a good choice <laughs> like you thing, know what I'm good thing I did that yeah um, whereas they don't they never extend that same or they don't extend the, the thought process of being born here gave me certain privileges to someone else who where it's the opposite. So having been born, been born in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, you've got a whole set of geopolitical shit kind of hanging over your head that you had no say in. Um, and so, but at the same time, this movie saying that makes you evil. Everybody's evil. There's a little boy and his mother. His mother sends him out with a grenade. Chris Kyle airholes him, and so the woman picks up the grenade. Doesn't care about her dead child. Just wants to chuck that grenade at those Marines. Right. Kills her, too. That's her real concern, yeah. Um, and that's his first kill, is a kid and his mom. Yeah. Um, or, what, I don't know if it's his mom. It's some sort of yeah. maternal figure. Um, is she in a nun outfit? Is that right? Like a religious outfit? Well, she just has a hijab on, but it's not like... I, I th- For some reason, I thought I saw like a white collar. It might have just been like... A white thing yeah, underneath it or something, just, but and then later on, when the little kid picks up the the rocket launcher, and he's like, "Drop it!" and the the implication is like, "Don't make me murder you," right? Um, which is just so it, it just fucked up on a lot of levels. And when the kid drops it, he's like relieved because right. he's like, "I would have killed that kid." Right? God forbid you shoot a bullet six feet to the right, you know, to make him scared and and drop it and run away, so you don't have to. Just even engage in that decision. And the implication is like, and people, common Americans will say this too, like, oh, well, either that kid dies or he kills several Marines. It's like, you never stop to think that the Marines shouldn't fucking be there in the first place. Um, yes. That's the, that's the implication I, hanging see, over the whole movie. That is, the, uh, all of these movies, but especially American Sniper, that is the failure. The fa- that It just does not have the courage to think further than to think further back than these sort of patriotic assumptions 
and and I think you see that really well in um, at the beginning of American Sniper, Chris Kyle's father's the, that character, God. his speech to the family at the dinner table, and which is just boomer like fucking psychotic. Yeah, um, takes his belt off and slams it on the table. He says there are three types of people in the world: uh, wolves. wolves, sheep, and sheep dogs. Um, obviously, I, we're, I think we're supposed to think of Chris Kyle as the sheep dog, yeah. um, which is eerily, you know, that sort of metaphor is eerily similar to Team America's uh, there's three types of people in the world, uh, pussies, dicks, and assholes. Uh, you know, those are completely interchangeable. But what I think that character... Uh, sort of egregiously fails to mention is that like if you accept his metaphor of wolves sheep and sheepdogs uh, you can't ignore the fact that sheepdogs just like categorically have masters you know a dog is not born you know with this sense of duty it has to be trained to do these things so if you know if we're thinking of Chris Kyle or, or, or Navy SEALs or, or Marines or whoever as the sheepdog or policeman or whoever. Um, just logically, there's actually a fourth type of person, and that is the people in control of the sheepdogs. Uh, and, and what I'm saying is, in all these movies, Eastwood fails to to go back far enough intellectually to to pose those questions. Why is the military the means by which these people, but you see this especially in the 1517 to Paris, why is the military the means or, or the institution that supplies a sense of higher purpose? You know, Chris Kyle talks about feeling this calling a higher calling the the people the the guys in the 1517 to Paris talk about it uh, clearly um, the character in Gran Torino felt it but they never ask why should this feeling this calling to a higher purpose be expressed through uh, state violence you know, and, and I think it's because it's it's the one that's there. It is so visible and advertised. Be all that you can be. You know what I'm saying? It is it is a template that is just readily available. And, and weirdly, it reminds me of a ad campaign for Snickers, uh, the the candy bar, where if you remember, the the whole like catchphrase was "Hungry? Why wait?" Snickers, and I remember working with a student on a rhetorical, um, what do you call it? Like a rhetorical analysis. analysis of of a of a commercial or a, or an advertisement of some sort, and she had chosen the Snickers Why Wait ad, and what she realized is that uh, Snickers was completely arbitrary to the logic that they were positing. Like, if you're hungry, uh, you can eat an apple. You, you, know, <laughs> you can eat anything. 
why wait? It's not necessarily it's not necessary to eat a Snickers if you're hungry, uh, but you associate uh, satisfying immediate hunger with Snickers because of the advertisement. So what I'm saying is, the mili- everyone feels this sense of, uh, you know, they, they don't no one wants their life to be about some sort of uh, meaningless, uh, you know. Oh, I I grow. And then I, I make as much money as I can, I guess, and try to be comfortable. <laughs> and then I die, and and, and that's fine. No, I, very few people, I guess, think like that. Uh, and so, every, like, I, I guess, I could just generalize and say everyone feels that sense of of a higher purpose. But there's no need for that to be expressed and 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 sought in this institution that is like I said the most destructive force on the fucking planet yeah and that's but it sells itself as a solution to that problem the the like uh, 90s marines commercial with the badass flame monster and the dude fighting it with the sword I know exactly Um, what you're talking about yeah everybody does because it was fucking everywhere and and it was like I remember watching it being like man the marines must be hardcore that's pretty cool (laughs) Um, but I never, like, I was just one of those kids, like, it never even crossed my mind to join the military. And my mom was like, when I turned 18, I had to do the, uh, whatever the fuck that's called, where you have to register, you know, the voluntary thing, yeah. where if they ever reinstitute a draft, they have your name and all that. And, uh, you know, 9-11 happened when I was in middle school. We were at war and I had to do all that stuff. And uh, my mom, like a lot of liberal-leaning parents at the time... She just looked at me one day and was like, if the draft is reinstated, I'm going to send you to Canada or somewhere. Um, like a good mother. Like a good mother. Uh, but a good mother in an Eastwood movie is, like, supportive no matter what. And is like, oh, my, my son's a hero, right? Make that sacrifice. Make that sacrifice. Because it's the greatest country on earth and you should try to defend it. Well, um, and I don't want to seem glib and and... You know, to trivialize, because I, I just imagine, not that there's any mother of a Marine listening to this podcast anywhere, but if there were, that th- maybe that would seem, I mean, I'm obviously more than inconsiderate, but what I'm saying is, We, I, I, like, American Sniper is a very, I, just a very sad movie to me. And, and I wish, because, because it just brings up the general, you know, general feelings I have about the American military. Um, and, and it's, it's very sad because it's, it seems so unnecessary and while I, I, you know, I don't support, I don't, I mean, I, I don't support any war, and I don't support any um, blindly nationalistic understanding of of the world, or, or you know, anything like that. You want to have sympathy for someone who has lost a loved one, but I also want to have the courage to say. Let's look at the real reasons they're gone. Yeah, you know, and, and I feel like it would be disrespectful to give in 
to that narrative that's being sold to everyone about why they're gone, which is all they died, you know, yeah. uh, defending the greatest country in the world. What the fuck does that mean? You shouldn't you shouldn't be proud that your son got blown up with a car bomb in some random place in Afghanistan. You should be angry that he was there in the first place for that. Exactly. Kind of exactly. Um, and it, it kind of comes up in the movie a little bit when the uh, the the seal dies and they're at his funeral and his mother's reading the letter or whatever it is her her little address mm-hmm. and in the truck uh, Chris Kyle's like you know that bullet didn't kill him that letter's what killed him that sort of right. thing weakness yeah and it's just it's such a disgusting fucking attitude to have yeah um, but yeah it's just uh, you know I, you know it's hard to be like oh well your son died for nothing but. That is kind of how I feel. Well, I, I think it's much worse than nothing. <laughs> the you wrong things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's rough. And, and it's it's hard not to sound like an asshole talking about this, you know what I'm saying? But Because it's been set up that way, right? I mean, 9-11 hits and immediately it's support our troops, yellow ribbons on everything. I had, um, you know, kids I went to high school with who were utter and complete shitheads, nobody liked them, they were assholes all the time, and because they had no other options in life, joined the military, and were basically, um, as one of the guys in 1517th Paris says, a glorified security guard, um, one of them, like, was a guard for a lumber yard in Afghanistan, and, like, sprained his ankle getting off a truck or some shit, um, but they come home, they're heroes immediately, like, just rubber-stamped heroes, they're made police officers, for some reason, but like both of the guys I went to high school with, who were just utter shitheads, joined the military, didn't do anything in the military that's worth that that showed any kind of bravery, came back, were just immediately made police officers, um, and it's just kind of just how our society functions, um, and it's just it just kind of gives me pause to think about the same kid that used to like skip skip everybody in the lunch line because he was too impatient to wait and thought he was smooth um, joins the military and now he's like a cop and he can arrest me? He can pull me over? Are you fucking kidding me? This kid who like tried to cheat off me in math class and I was even shitty at math? Like he's the one? It's just the hero worship process. Yeah I think I think you said something we, when we watched the 1517 to Paris the other night about uh um, how this was like some the movie was like an elaborate plan to uh, promote the military discount <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, uh, so 1517 to Paris is the first movie we've done that where we watched it together um, just because it looked like an experience that we needed to share it was a sort of a, a popcorn and beer kind of <laughs> yeah it was it was it was something, but yeah, I was saying like that's the whole reason this movie exi- exists is to get that military discount, go to Perkins and get your cheap breakfast buffet or whatever. Um, but we can. Uh, oh well, one last thing I want to talk about with American Sniper. Um, I got one more thing too, Don. I won't forget. So the I want to talk about the dog scene because it's when he comes home and he's, you know, he's having he's struggling with PTSD, which is something the film tries to you know give some you know pay homage to and so he's at the the backyard barbecue and the dog is like playing with his son and he he kind of like thinks the dog is being too too aggressive or is attacking him so he takes his belt off and he goes and he like 
holds the dog down and he's about to hit it with the belt and everybody's like, oh my God, what are you doing? And, uh, and my wife and I both had the same, um, the same reaction, which was like, oh, don't hit the, don't hit the puppy. And I feel like that's the reaction everybody has. Like, oh no, not the dog. Meanwhile, uh, you've just seen how hundreds <laughs> exactly. of rats get their fucking heads blown he, off. He's just been just absolutely smoking random Iraqis for the whole movie. And then the scene where he almost hits a dog is like, oh, that's too far. Now you need help. <laughs> um, it, it's just so, it, it's so like emotionally manipulative. And I, I would say that it works on like 99.9% of the audience. Of like, oh, this, this is how you know he's really you know, he's really struggling is because he almost hit the dog. Right. Yeah, not that he's an American... Unremorseful about American psycho. Killing a hundred yeah. and something people. Um, who he says are evil. Savages. At one point he says to one of his... to I forget which character it is, but he's like... He asks him why he's still there, and he's like, there's evil here, you've seen it. And he, he, he has a fucking crusader cross tattooed on his arm. Like, it's just, it just tells you all you need to know. That's a good segue into the thing I wanted to say uh, before we move on, if, if indeed we will. I, th- I feel like we're going to come back to American Sniper. It's, it's the clear standout of this bunch. Uh, but uh, religion in, in American Sniper and Gran Torino and the 1517 of Paris plays an interesting role uh, uh, especially in, in Gran Torino, where the priest is a young, a young man in his twenties, and, and the whole film is basically an argument against him, <laughs> you know. And and then you have the religious character in uh, American Sniper, the soldier who eventually dies. Uh, and Chris Kyle's Bible after, yeah, yeah, uh, after endorsing the philosophy of an eye for an eye. Yeah. Right? And so the thought I had was that these movies, it's like he wants to, Eastwood kind of wants to eliminate Christian principles from Christianity and yet maintain the sort of religious reverence of Christianity. See, that's really interesting. You know what I'm saying? It it plays in, uh, because there's a scene where that, that same character... Mark Lee, maybe was his name, who was a real guy. He was like the first, the first Navy SEAL to die in the war, the war in Iraq. Um, but Chris Kyle has his little Bible that he stole from church as a young boy, which is like also weird that he stole it from church. But he puts it in the front of his like vest or whatever. He and says, "Is that bulletproof?" Yeah, and yeah. he he says, "Well, do you ever read it?" And the implication from Chris Kyle is, "No, I don't." Because he has his beliefs and he doesn't need to check them in the Bible or whatever. So it plays in the idea of, you know, he doesn't need the actual reading or understanding. Right. He has this his just, principles. This is just a Rorschach for me to project my, yeah. my own Like I know what's right and wrong. I don't need and, to And that, to that's very it. similar to what goes, well, you know, what happens in Gran Torino where you have the, at the end, after Walt dies, the priest giving the speech about how much Walt taught him, you know. Um, but it, it really reminded me in Gran Torino when the priest endorses uh, the priest endorses the violence, and then in uh, American Sniper, the the soldier who we learned you know went to seminary school uh, endorses violence. 
Uh, it reminds me of the uh, the Patriot with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Which for for another reason, before I forget, aim small, miss small. Yeah, yeah. The phrase in American Sniper is aim small, know, miss small, Thomas. Yeah, is uh, oft repeated in uh, the Patriot. They used to show us the Patriot in school. Yeah. Which is fucking insane to think about. But if you, if you remember, the there's a priest character in the Patriot also who leaves the church, the congregation to go fight. Yeah. In the in the American Revolution and. <clears throat> so it, it's almost like <clears throat> in these movies the suggestion is that what we call religion is actually just like this faction you know this one small component of of a you know of a larger religion that is America or you know nationalism or whatever you want to call it and 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 the smaller faction just is a way to um, glorify the real religion of America, um, and and it, another thing I noticed in American Sniper is all this sort of like uh, banter between branches of the military, Marines versus SEALs, sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like denominations <laughs> in church, you know. Oh man, uh, and it kind of comes up in uh, fifteen seventeen too, where he's trying to get into the specific branch and can't. So that's one of my big critiques of just American Protestantism in general is just this idea that there's no, there doesn't seem to be any sort of strong foundation other than tradition and like this is what we believe it because it's right, because it's this way. And there are those people that always have their nose in like a study Bible or whatever, but for the most part it seems to be, you know, I prayed on it, (laughs) the Spirit led me that kind of stuff and and so it, when you have that kind of belief that's not really that um, sort of um, heterodoxic or what, whatever the term for it would be heteropraxic um, then you just are kind of making it up as you go and you can fit it into whatever mold you need it to be in Right. so if you want to go and you know kill 140 Iraqis or whatever it is, and then you can fit that into your morality very easily. Um, yeah, and so and so then the question becomes, okay, what's another religion or denomination or whatever um, that basically does does the larger structure tell the story tell a story worth telling? And, and not allow that, you know? Is there another religion that does not allow that? Why do we, why do we need this big other to funnel our, you know, our, or to channel our morality through? Um, and I, I'm, that's not a, that's a sincere question. And I'm not saying people don't need it. Or that yeah. I don't need it, or that we don't need. It. You know, I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. I just, I'm curious why. Why has this been the uh, the dominant trend in human history? And that's I think comes into um, Gosha's concept of of religion having a place to pl- play or a role to play in bringing people to the fold about climate change, so to speak, is because it is that kind of big other, that kind of organizing principle that can get people 
not only on the same page, but then in action in the same direction. And that's what's so dangerous environmentally about films like we're talking about tonight yeah. is that it these movies sort of eclipse that and and undermine that possibility because because they they put these movies put uh, religion in a nationalistic context and a political nationalistic context uh, to where you start to associate insanely you start to associate uh, contemporary political issues um, with uh, much larger uh, philosophical and theological issues and, and this to first reforms credit it addresses this when you know when Toller says uh, there's there's not an American flag on the on, on Jesus's pulpit you know yeah. Uh, but of course, that's a very rare, special film, in my opinion, uh, <laughs> and and clearly not the not the view of, of any of these movies we're discussing this week. It's in a lot of a lot of ways kind of the uh, anti-American sniper um, in multiple ways with yeah. its view on the military, its view toward religion, its view toward the environment, um, even its view toward family, somewhat because. It, it, Anyway, we don't need to, to go back into First Reformed or it'll, we'll get carried away on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's so much. And, and what I'll say is like, it's really, you have to be damn near brain dead, I think, to come out of American Sniper and still be like, oh, Chris Kyle, really cool American hero. Like, I don't, watching the, and I don't know if this is just me and coming into it with my set of beliefs and, and way of analyzing things. But it seems really difficult for me to come out of that and think like, I want to be like him. Yeah. But um, I'm sure like, I'm sure there are people that feel that way. And, but, but even, even with, you know, the, the, the character himself comes out of this experience that the film depicts, not necessarily knowing if he wants to be, in quotes, uh, Chris Kyle, the legend. Yeah, you know he does. He, he says that at the end. Him. He says, uh, he says something to the the guy says, the like, "Who's the legend now?" And he says, "Oh, you don't want that right. title, right?" Uh, but it, but it's almost like the things we to to qualify that statement were like in the deleted scenes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it, like it, all it, the stuff that would have made this movie good and uh, thoughtful were just cut out left on the all, all on the that self floor. doubt the self doubt the scenes of self doubt that would have qualified Kyle at the end saying you don't you don't really want to be the legend are not there where are those scenes i don't know because he seems very self assured for the for the whole movie except for that one line yeah you know and then he's like weirded out when his brother who he sees you know coincidentally um, says fuck this place when they're in Iraq and he you know are we supposed to think that Chris Kyle's having a moment of doubt there because even his brother is saying this or are we supposed to think he thinks his brother's having a moment of weakness you know um, like it's almost like uh, Chris is the you know exceptional patriot like he's the true sheepdog like he's the one that is able to deal with all this 
stuff, whereas his brother can't really put up with it as much. Because right. remember, his brother is the one that got bullied, and he right. came and, and saved but, him. But then, but then clearly, Chris Kyle himself can't deal with it either, despite his yeah. insistence that he can. And to the film's credit, it shows this, you know, ven- that, that a lot of that patriotic rhetoric and stuff is, is a veneer of just sort of tough guy, individualist bullshit that, that uh, his wife calls him on. Uh, yeah. and, and yet it still kind of succumbs to it uh, You, the, the movie feels fucking schizophrenic and just all over the place it doesn't know what it believes it's like the movie is a document of uh, you know of Clint Eastwood wrestling with these ideas like yeah. he, if he's insisting that it's about you know veterans re-entering civilian society then why the fuck isn't the movie about veterans re-entering society yeah. Um, that's a that's a footnote, you know, tacked on at the end, uh, or, or just sort of glossed over. For the it, you know, clearly seems to be more interested in this weird uh, butcher plot of the uh, of the of the film's middle in the weird like sniper not sniper enemy at the gates like Mustafa versus Chris Kyle thing, right? Um, I will say, like, the film produced one scene that I was like, I really am into this scene. And it's when he's back home. It's it's right before the dog scene. And he's he's sitting in the chair, and he's staring at the TV, and the TV's not on. And he's hearing all the, like, explosions. And, and the things. camera sort of pans around. Yeah, and then yeah. you see, like, oh, the TV's not even on. This is just kind of happening. Like, it, and, you know, it's a little heavy-handed, but I just really... I was like, okay, yeah, I can enjoy this scene. Like, this is trying to make some sort of statement, and it has all this sort of deeper kind of psychological stuff going on. And the fact that you have this kind of, uh, um, I don't even know what the adjective form, Baudrillardian, like Jean Baudrillard, like um, war as television, as as this hyper, or not hyper object, that's tempting word, as a um, simulacrum, right, this watching a televised war so did it ever really happen that sort of stuff and he's staring at a blank screen that's all in his head and it was just uh, and yet and yet as audience members we're like we're thinking it's totally plausible that those noises came from the TV yeah, yeah. but that yeah. would be normal right? right but even earlier in the film we see him watching himself kill civilians basically yeah. and um, in the, is he watching himself kill civilians or is he watching the the sort of rival sniper. Maybe that I, I, I can't, can't remember. remember but it, Either way, watching, he's watching real live footage. Yeah, he's watching a snuff film, footage, basically. Um, yeah, like his, a live feed. His which highlight is now. reel. Yeah. And um, so you Web see this gems. idea of, uh, you know, Baudrillard was talking about the first Gulf War and how it was the first war that was kind of completely televised. And his thing was like, well, if it's completely happening on television, does it really ever, does it really happen in real life? Um, yes, is and, the answer to that question. Y- yes, is, is 100% the answer. But in the minds of Americans, all they see is the televised footage of us, you know, stomping ass and, oh, USA. And and I just remember being in uh, eighth grade, and we invade Iraq, and we were watching the bombing on television, right, right. Um, in class, because our teacher's like, this is historic. It was history class. She's like, this is historically significant. Um so it's it's just so ingrained in our society and the, right and then and then fucking according to Jim comes on after that you know what I'm saying <laughs> yeah and that uh, weirdly in a 
you know, coincidentally, that is sort of the issue uh, that's addressed in Funny Games. Michael Haneke's Funny Games that we uh, briefly the, the mentioned. Michael Pitt is the that sort of discussion they have at the end of the the difference between material and immaterial reality as it pertains to violence in you know in movies and on television and and I think it's sort of if I'm if I recall correctly the it ends with Michael Pitt's character saying why would not why wouldn't people uh, perceive them the same way you know uh, yeah, yeah I, I, it's a uh, there's a lot more to unpack with that movie but uh, I think you're right to, to point out that uh, particular scene in American Sniper as maybe <clears throat> I mean very relevant and, and worth worth thinking about but kind of unintentionally so I think it was just kind of trying to be a, oh, yeah. a sort of gimmicky I, sort de- of I 100% think it's unintentional right. um, but it did kind of it, it stuck out to me um, so I guess let's talk about 1517 to Paris and, and, and there's not a ch- there's not a lot to say other than this movie <laughs> fucking sucks on it every really level does. to where it's so bad like like we said earlier it's it's nowhere near as powerful or dangerous as as uh, American Sniper, just because no one, very few yeah. people are going to be entertained by this. Movie. It's not. It's not as tricky with the. It's not as sort of schizophrenic with the content. Yeah, it's transparently um, propaganda. Yeah, I think we called it the fucking Disney Channel original movie, Disney Channel original war movie. Yeah, or something. It, yeah. it really is. And it, the big gimmick is that it's the actual people, the actual guys who were involved with the with stopping the attack and all that, which is which is even more like the uh, Inglorious Bastards. Yes, film. <laughs> and they are not good actors. Only one of them seems to even kind of be trying, I guess. Um, or at least the one guy. Which the, one? Oh, like the main dude. Okay. Like the, the dude that loses all the weight. The dude who looks like the guy uh, from the opening of Prometheus. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, the the bald dude, um, and something else that was shocking to us was the the sheer number of known actors and actually like known comedic actors who are just in this movie unexplicably. You have they were um, just what it was. You have these sort of marginal yeah. actors. I mean, known but for like you know what's his name Tony Kale or something. The guy from Arrested Development. Yeah. And Jenna Fisher and who's the guy from Reno Nine One One? Thomas Lennon. Yeah, you. So you have these Judy cre- Greer. Judy Greer. You have these people who are just creaming their jeans to be in a Clint Eastwood movie, and they had no idea what they signed up for. And they're all, none of them, I would say, are bad actors, but they all come off as bad actors, especially Jenna Fisher. She does not come out looking good no. from this movie. No. Um, and just all of the stuff, all of the bad things about American Sniper are just sort of cranked up to 10. They rip the fucking knob off. Um, the the religious stuff where you have... Um, well, God, what... You have Jenna Fisher playing the mother of not the, the sort of main central guy that we hang out with, but his friend who says to him as he's getting on a plane to go fight in Afghanistan. Um, you know, I prayed about it, and God God told me that he's got big plans for you, 
and you're going to do something great. And it's just, it's so hollow and just like, I don't even know how to explain how, how just like hollow it's, it is. It, it's, it's like the screenwriter is the same person who wrote like God's Not Dead. Yeah, you know, it, it, it felt those. it felt like a pure flicks, you know. A uh, yeah, it, it just did not seem like a, a Clint Eastwood sort of Hollywood no. endeavor at all. It was it was very strange. It, strange is, is definitely a word for it. And hell, there's just it, it's it's trying to make these statements, but you don't know what they are or why they're there. So like, it's got a whole thing about like single mothers because both of the the sort of main kids that you meet at the beginning are both raised by single mothers and it's like for half a second tries to make some sort of point about that but then that's gone immediately and um, the fact that their uh, their friend who's black you'd never meet his parents that's a little weird to me yeah it's like Stranger Things <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's so that's there and weird um, and the fact that the guy uh, works so hard to get into the military puts in all this you have a training montage of him losing weight and running sprints and all that shit um it's just it, it, it's doing so many things poorly it's also a travel movie because they're on their European tour yeah it's basically a Euro trip it's <laughs> yeah. like the worst but version like of way Euro. less interesting because <laughs> the people suck uh, yes. they go to are they in Rome when they meet the random girl who they're just hanging out yeah, with yeah they're somewhere in Italy and then they go to Germany I think they go to a there's a rave scene in Germany oh my god Clint Eastwood I can't even like fucking oh my god Clint Eastwood is in love with upskirt shots in this movie it's ridiculous like, yeah, so yeah. They, they go to the hostel in Rome and the the lady who runs the hostel has like a little skirt on and she's going up this spiral staircase and it like pans up her legs slowly and then they're at the rave scene in Germany and there's like five or six ass shots and it's just creepy old man shit all over this ass, real like ass, Joe ass, Biden ass. <laughs> everywhere you turn they're just um, Joe Biden their time yeah God. It, it's just <laughs> so it's it, like a uh, you know we, we watched this we watched 15 to 17 to Paris with sort of high hopes but I, like I said, I assumed basic filmmaking proficiency because it was Clint Eastwood, and it's just not there. It feels like a B movie for sure. Like he just phoned it in, and it's there's not much to say about it. It's so yeah, bad. It's like not. it's unimportant. It's like the opposite in, in a lot of ways of Interstellar, which is like very well made. You know, it's like very slick entertainment that sort of hides its shitty social vision uh, beneath this technical proficiency. This is just... Uh, 15 to 17 in Paris is just blatant propaganda. It's yeah. like, let me just... And it's propaganda for stupid people, I would say. Like, Yeah. It's not... Like, it's not... It's not... It's, it's like a documentary. Or it's like, it's like one of those, like recruitment videos from the fucking 40s to get you to enlist for World War Two. it's just <laughs> the acting is that bad yeah. just so many things in it. and something that, that stuck out to me is the, the big climactic battle in the train with the and I have to say like the terrorist guy it's that thing and that's also an American sniper is that anytime you see a Middle Eastern person they are 100% up to no good 
Um, so you see him from the beginning. He goes in the bathroom, and that guy's like, he's been in the bathroom for 10 minutes. I went, it's like, maybe he's just taking a shit. Dude. Yeah, maybe he went to Chipotle. Like, well, because this is the, the one time that dude is validated because he's an actual terrorist. Right. And so they're, um, you know, the climactic scene, and they're, they're wrestling with the guy. And through some through the power of God, I guess his gun doesn't fire like there's no bullet in it or whatever. <laughs> the power uh, of God. And so there, there's this. It's just I I don't know how this is not shocking to more people, but they tackle the terrorist guy. The one dude's got him pinned down, face down on a on like a table on the train, and the other dude takes the dude's pist- the terrorist oh. pistol, puts it to his gun, tries to fucking. Point blank execute the guy like it, three times. Yeah, like three times, and each time's like click, 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 and then they decide to just like choke him out and tie him up. Right. But he just like tried to murder this dude, like execution style, multiple times. Right. Um, Remorselessly. Yeah, just yeah. like this has to happen, <laughs> and, and it's it's just the movies. Just very bad. The one guy looks uh, not the main guy, but like sort of second in command. <laughs> Looks like a fucking psycho. He looks like every frat douchebag you've ever met. He really life, does, you know. And so, Ian, you, you pointed out when we were watching it that it does the same thing American Sniper does, which is at the end we revert to like the real life footage. Yeah. Whereas in American Sniper, it's the what I thought was a just disgusting scene of like people lining the highway to see Chris Kyle go yeah. by. Well, and um, the, the general narrative structures of of all three of these movies, Gran Torino, American Sniper, and the 15 to 17 to Paris are sort of pornographic. You know, it's like there's this tease of violence at the beginning of all three. Uh, and then, it, you know, flashback to foreplay. And there's yeah. this build up to this, you know, climactic violence. Uh, yeah. And just... Um, to backtrack to American Sniper, I thought it was funny that when he catches his girlfriend cheating on him, he uh, gets over it immediately. Yeah, he's laughing about it. But then later on, like it also, it also had that weird thing that's in kind of American Christian culture, which is like horniness is very bad unless it's marital horniness, and then it's like the best thing in the world. Yeah. And you have that gross scene at the end where he's like pointing the gun at her, and he's like, drop them drawers. It's so weird. He just like leaves the gun. And the well, whole thing, like on top early in the thing. film, the whole thing with his dad in the flashback is like, you never leave your gun in the dirt, and you you know, you know respect it as a weapon, and he's using it as just a straight-up toy. This is my rifle. This is my gun. This is Fofi. This is Fofom. That's something we didn't mention in the, the 15th. Fucking the fucking Full Metal, the full metal jacket, jacket poster. This little what bastard. What the fuck? Like, the main kid uh, in his room as a child has a Full Metal Jacket poster on the wall. It's like this. Uh, first off, maybe this kid shouldn't be watching the movie. But sec- <laughs> but secondly, he did not understand it. If he's super, because uh, he's he pulls uh, like when the the first time his friend comes over, he pulls all the fake guns out of his closet, and then he's got like the real like hunting rifle. He's obsessed with guns in the military. It's like I don't think you understood the point of this film. Um, I don't no. think you got it. I just. There's, there is, uh, there's, like I said, there's not much relevant to say about the fifteen seventeen to Paris. No, that was it. Was just a shit show through and through. 
It really was. Do you, uh, do you have anything about the mule that is relevant? Because fuck the fifteen seventeen to Paris. Uh, yeah, I have some things I want to. I'm going to throw at you here because these are things that really happened in the mule. <laughs> and I want uh, you once to again, just, I have not seen. Yeah, the mule. I just want to see how you react to them. So, like I said, he plays uh, Clint Eastwood plays Earl Stone, who's this ninety uh, year old. Super popular horticulturalist, known for like <laughs> he grows really fancy flowers, and he's famous for it for some reason. And uh, so he becomes this drug mule. And there's a scene where he's coming out of like a like a store or something, and there there are these people fixing these motorcycles, like a biker gang sort of situation, and they're they're working on this motorcycle. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I used to ride one of those. It's, it's probably the the relay or whatever." And he's like, "Let me help you there, son." And the person stands up, and she's like. Who are you calling son? And it's a bunch of women. And she's like, oh, you're, uh, you're gals. Or I, I think that's the word he uses. And they go, no, we're not gals. We're dykes on bikes. And he's like, oh, no shit. And then they have this like exchange, and he's leaving. And they're like, thanks, old man. And he says uh, something like, uh, you're welcome, dykes. Straight up. It, okay, so there's another scene later on where there's a, a black family broken down on the side of the road he stops to help them and as he's hit, he he gets out to help him change the tire and the dude the the father of the family is looking for like a phone signal and Clint Eastwood's character says well your, your daddy never taught you how to change a tire he's like no that's why I'm trying to google it he's like well let me try it let me you know let me show you how to do it and in like helping them with the tire calls them negroes and they stop and they're like Oh, we're not a you know that's not nobody says that anymore. We're like we're we're black. You can call we're black. You're white. That's it's okay. And he says, oh well, no shit. And those those are two scenes that are in this movie, wow. alongside this you know his threesomes, um, which is another thing that is he directed <laughs> the movie. Um, but so yeah, there's some stuff. Going, but like I said, like even with all this you know awful shit, it's. I think it's maybe like objectionable, but the least objectionable of the of the four. Um, and it's weird that it's kind of in a lot of ways a road trip movie where he mm. there's just long scenes of him driving again, ninety year old man driving. So we got Euro trip and road trip. Yeah, and just driving through these uh, landscapes that are kind of beautiful in how they're shot, but again, they're shot from the viewpoint of this dude driving this giant truck, um, and it's just. He, he has this really old, like, Chevy or some shit, and once he makes his drug money, he buys a brand-new giant-ass Lincoln pickup truck, which I didn't even know they made pickup trucks. Um, but, you know, he had to buy American. <laughs> and it, there's just... There's a lot going on, but that, that kind of thing that Pete Davidson and John Mulaney talked about of uh, showing that uh, an old white man can still do the job better than a Mexican that, that, that <laughs> right. basically holds even true. if it's Mexican drug smuggling yeah yeah that, that, that basically holds true hmm. um, it's like Clint Eastwood's just trying to get to a point where he can say racial slurs openly you know it's like <laughs> people people talk about Tarantino you know trying to do that too uh, with his films and all their uh, racial language uh, but in this movie, it's just, uh, you know, Earl Stone is just kind of bumbling through, around through society and just kind of gets away with everything because he's 90 and he's like, well, you know, I, ne- I didn't never use the internet. I don't know how to text. I never, I never knew not to call you Negroes. It's like just all of this is in this film. 
Um, and it's sort of, it seems to be Clint Eastwood's kind of last stand of like, you know, this younger generation doesn't yeah. know what it's like. Well, and there's there's a you know that a sense of that in Gran Torino too. This sort of uh, authority figure, sort of guiding the uh, the youth character, the you know, the Korean boy. But it it almost plays like this super fucked up Finding Forrester. It's like, and you know, instead of the authority figure teaching the the kid to be a writer, he's teaching him how to be a racist. <laughs> You know that scene where he's like going to the barber shop, yeah, and he's like telling, he's like trying to teach the kid how to have how to use slurs, repressed, you know, latently homosexual conversations with male friends. You know, like, oh, this is how men talk to each Let other. Let me teach like, you how to what? be a man in the fifties. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. God, and so you know, at the end of the meal when he gets caught. It's a sort of so Bradley Cooper makes another appearance. Should be said like Bradley Cooper is like, I guess the heir to the throne when it comes to Clint Eastwood's uh, film legacy. But he plays sort of the head FBI agent that's uh, in charge of catching the this mysterious mule, and they have this kind of back and forth relationship where they meet earlier in the film and they have like a a really kind of heartfelt conversation in a Waffle House where Earl's like. You need to make sure that you spend time with your family. And then he catches him at the end, and he's like, oh, it was you the whole time. And he's like, yeah, it was me. And there's this, like, weird respect. And, like, even in the courtroom at the end when the the lawyer's, like, saying, oh, he was taken advantage of, and then Earl says, no, it's, it's okay, I did it, like, I'm guilty. Which is, like, the one thing in the film where I was like, okay, good, I like that. Um, but there's this kind of idea that because he's this, you know, old white man who served his country and all that shit, he gets all this sort of... He kind of gets a pass on a lot of this. He goes to prison, but at the end he's shown in prison, like, gardening, growing his fancy-ass flowers. And it's just sort of... You think of... He's moving... I think when he gets caught, he has, like, 300 kilos of heroin or coke or whatever it is in the back of his truck. And he's, like, very gingerly, like, apprehended and handcuffed and, you know, carefully put in the back of the truck. Whereas if that's a, a younger brown person, they're just going to get slammed on the concrete, if not fucking shot. Mm. And there's a scene that, like, I wish you would watch it just for this scene where they pull over a guy who they think is the mule, and he's, I think he's Latino, uh, and he gets out of the car, and he's overreacting to being pulled over by the cops, and he's, like, yelling statistics. He's like, I'm more likely to be killed right now than at any point in my life, and he's freaking out and, like, yelling, like, don't shoot me, like, I have rights and all this. And the cops are kind of like nonchalant. They're like, "Okay, you're you're free to go." And they get him. He gets back in the truck, and as they're walking away, he's like, "Oh, thank you, officers. Thank you for your." And it's sort of Clint Eastwood poking Blue fun, lives matter, yeah. poking fun at this idea that, oh well, you know, not all cops are bad. You know, it's like, how many videos do we need of a young black person being? you know, shot and or slammed face first into the concrete. There's a new one now of a teenager who literally didn't do anything, just getting choked out by a cop. Um, so Clint Eastwood kind of saying all that's overblown and people are overreacting to being stopped by the police. Yeah. And if anyone would know about the uh, sort of gritty reality of young black people's interactions Be with police. cops, it's the uh, one of the most prolific, famous, recognizable Hollywood celebrities for the last 50 years, Clint Eastwood. 
I will say, like, there's the, you know, the scene from the trailer where he gets pulled over and he's got all the pecans in the back of his, the pecans, the pecans in the back of his truck. There's a drug-sniffing dog around, and how he throws the dog off his game is in the cup holder of his truck, he has a tube of Bengay, and he squeezes it into his hand and, like, rubs it on the dog's nose. <laughs> and that's how he beats the drug dog. I've got to see this movie. It's... It really does roll. It is. <laughs> it is kind of great. Like it, it, it. It's. It's got some things that are clearly fucked up. But it, it, compared to those other movies, it is far and away like the most enjoyable to watch. I hope so. <laughs> this was a shitty week. The best movie I watched this week was uh, Robert Bresson's Pickpocket. Just randomly, it's on streaming on the on that uh, canopy service uh, a a French film from 1959 was the best movie I saw this week I mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean with it had like almost no music and uh, I mean it's so the, it, sh- it shouldn't have been the most exciting movie I saw but it was <laughs> so I have a uh, I have a question I want to pose before we we call it a, a night. Um, and I was trying to think, and I you know I kind of went back and forth on this, but trying to come up with a grand unified theory of Clint Eastwood. So if we're saying like Clint Eastwood auteur, then what is his kind of what is his thing, right? Yeah. So it's this question that, in the way I phrased it, is a uh, purposefully stupid. It's a is there a there there? So does does it have a content? Like, is there some sort of unifying thesis, or is it just all over the place? Right. Is it John McCain, or is it Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah. Both sure. wrong, but one at least has a cohesive sort of ideology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think I, I think there is. I think there's a there there, and I think. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier about it's uh, the thing these films have in common is their unwillingness to think harder or further back than the shining city on the hill. That is the assumption from which all of these movies rationalize. Uh, you know, they, they they make that assumption and then they just rationalize. Uh, all their meaning and and uh, anything they have to say is based on those assumptions or that assumption. So, yeah, I think you can say there's unifying themes that, as Chris Kyle says in American Sniper, God, family, country, or... But, but none I, of those things it's, are, cert, it's certainly not in that order but within those cat, the, you know there's real problems with those categories because like I said he he de he takes you know Christian principles out of Christianity he glorifies this sense of higher purpose in a military while problematizing the effects of of you know estrangement of the father from the family um and of course, there's all kinds of nationalistic stuff in here. Well, and just just 
just heteronormativity of like it, it's got to be a nuclear or couple of kids family right right um, so so yeah there's I think there are is a unifying theme but another unifying principle is is a an aversion or just utter lack of nuance to these themes yeah and, and like we said there's there's almost no political context for the war uh, in American sniper it's just like 9/11 jump cut I want to kill some terrorists yeah jump yeah. cut to the to the action like okay wait who are we killing why are we killing <laughs> yeah what's, what's going on yeah um, so in just the God family country and like you're saying how those all of those terms lack a clear and definite definition of like what does that mean right and it's like don't don't Iraqis uh, worship they don't, they don't God. get a God or a family or a country family and country they have all those things too so why how can this be um, centered around America, you know, it, it's just, it's just. There's no nuance to it. There's no, there's no serious thinking going on. No honesty. Just bolstering of, of sort of obviously held sentiments. Yeah, he's just sort of, you know, uh, piling on to what is already kind of there in the mainstream. Um, and not really challenging it in any kind of meaningful way. I mean, like we said in American Sniper, he there are a couple of moments where it verges on saying something useful, but then it doesn't. It just doesn't yeah. go there. Yeah. Um, and I would say that that very likely by design that it does that. Um, and again, you know, these are highly successful movies. I mean, American Sniper not only did it make a shit ton of money, but Best Picture nomination, Best Actor nomination, Best Director nomination. Like it's it, it was well received, which was right. the fucking craziest part to me. Well, and one of the weirdest parts is uh, Bradley Cooper in the lead role. You know, just mm-hmm. a, a major Hollywood figure, and some of some of his you know status as major was due to his role in this film. But um, his performance is not terrible. Um, no, as a performance, it's. You know what I'm saying? Like he, you, you sort of buy his sort of good old boy Texas bullshit, Uh, and and I'm not saying you buy the ideology. You buy the character, uh, to, you know, to his credit. Um, And there are a few moments, like I said, that scene in the bar, I think, is well well acted and and kind of kind of moving in a way, Um, but I'm not sure the movie understands. Why it's, why, why yeah. it's moving, you know? Uh, yeah, unif- unifying... There are unifying themes, but those themes, I think, are very confused in the mind of the filmmaker. In the, the very uh, old, um, you know, borderline dimension mind of the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, I mean, remember, he yelled at an empty chair. That he did. Never forget what that he, he did that. <laughs> Did, did uh, John Mulaney mention that in that SNL thing, right? Where yeah. Said, it's like, you remember when uh, Eastwood berated a chair at the Republican National Convention? The mule is just that. The, the whole movie is just that. And you know, he's not wrong. <laughs> um, it, it's Eastwood doing his best to put out like a really spry, moving performance in his late 80s. Well, like I said earlier, before we started recording... It would be a fucking shame for the same person who made Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby and Mystic River 
to go out on the fifteen seventeen to Paris. So at least he got got in something better than than that with the mule. Um, and just like it gives me hope that fifteen seventeen to Paris was not well received. <laughs> like people do not like that movie. Um, so thank God for that. <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, thank also God, like we said, thank family and country. Yeah, but like we said, like. American Sniper is the more damaging of those and the fact that it was a major part of the zeitgeist at least for that year and it's similar like we said to Interstellar in that no one really talks about when when you talk you hear people talk about Interstellar no one's talking about environmental concerns they're talking about the science right they talk about sort of Einsteinian science Neil deGrasse Tyson shit like that right and so and so to, to my mind that's more dangerous not because I mean you could make the argument that it's oh there's no problem there because people just didn't get it but I think I think those ideas are sort of you know they sort of seep into your mind um the assumptions of the film um you know, if enough films make the same assumptions, just start to be taken for granted in the culture. Um, so yeah, I think I think a movie that that hides its agenda better, or or you know more seamlessly, is is arguably more you know potentially harmful. Yeah. And so, if, if the agenda itself is harmful, yeah, which I, I think it, it definitely is. Um, but yeah, you know, to bring it back to the, the theme, what is supposed to be the driving theme of the podcast. Um, so taking the American military and just sort of military conflict and military um, adventure <laughs> in general um, as being one of, if not the most destructive forces regarding the natural environment, <clears throat> then it's hard to look at these films and not think of them as being um, signs of you know, living during the the age of warming or the great acceleration or whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, in in uh, was an uninhabitable Earth. David Wallace Wells, mm-hmm. that name. Yeah. Uh, it, may, it confuses me because David Wallace from The Office and do anyway um, says something like, "There's been more, um, you know, more fossil fuels or more." Uh, CO2 emissions putting the, the environment since I think he says like 9-11 or something than yeah. like the previous several decades yeah and it's like so basically I think his point when he's saying that is that our knowledge of imminent catastrophe has done absolutely nothing yeah. to to slow it and it's a it is an absolute gift to know that there's a problem that we've caused it that we know what to do to try to alleviate it somewhat and then to just do the opposite and to to borrow uh little dickie's metaphor <laughs> who i we watched his uh his new earth video the other night uh, and i went to the website afterwards and he i mean he's at least trying to talk about these things you know um he uses a basketball metaphor uh you know fourth quarter we're down uh, <laughs> uh and uh but he says the ball is in our possession. Like we have control of the ball. So it it it, it uh, depends on what we do, what plays we what play we design and call. And that's a little gimmicky. That's a little, you know, whatever. But uh, 
essentially, I think that's that's true. Like you said, uh, there's a. We are not helpless, um, theoretically. You know what I'm saying? In theory, we should be more able to help ourselves than at any other time in human history. Right. Um, Just, we have to fucking do it. But we have to do it. And and you were saying about, um, so, you know, Lil Dicky, the rapper, if you're interested, watch Lil Dicky's video for Earth on YouTube, which has... It's a like weird, really weird animated video that has cameos from like a million different celebrities, including and really Leo DiCaprio, who's you know yeah. been making a lot of documentaries about climate change. Yeah, kind of a weird deviation for Lil Dicky, who's mm-hmm. normally just sort of crass and and it's about wordplay and kind of you yeah, know rapping about getting laid and making yeah, money yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but in this Earth video, which is it's not even like a good song, but we're saying like all this stuff together of it being kind of kind of surreal and kind of funny and having all these celebrities and being kind of corny in a lot of ways like but being corny but having a very sincere message so we are the world message yeah Yeah. and we're saying like maybe that's how you do it like like maybe that's what connects with people right yeah what I was saying before we started recording was that I mean you can take you know for instance, Naomi Klein's book, who I, you know, that I quoted from earlier, and whose whose mind has that book changed? The people, if you, if you're inclined <laughs> to yeah. read that book, your mind's already there. Your mind's made up. Uh, but at the same time, even if you, it's not about changing people's minds. And I think Ghosh makes a similar point when he's sort of arguing against Gandhi's notion of be the change you wish to see in the world about how sort of individualistic that is. Yeah. It's like, no, we're, we're well past that. It's, it's implement the policies on a, on a global scale uh, that you wish to change the world. Uh, so anyway... I'm a little bit ambivalent about the the little Dicky video, just because on some on some level, yes, you have to meet people where they are, and and, and if this reaches a wide audience, the way you know Naomi Klein's not really going to, or Andreas Malm, or whoever you know whoever we're talking about, is only reaching kind of a an academic or an academically inclined audience. Um, Lil Dicky is reaching a, a much wider audience. But at the same time, the mode of this argument he's making is bolstering this sort of mass media, you know, this sort of YouTube viral sensational mainstream um, that is anything but disposed to countercultural rebellion against, <laughs> yeah. you know, against uh, sort of zeitgeist. Uh, it's well, just, unless you're, like, far right. Right. Um, right. Unless you're going in that direction with your uh, going against the mainstream. No, no. Uh, so, yeah, I, that's a, it's a complicated thing. Maybe we can, maybe we can do a mini, a miniature 
uh, little dicky <laughs> episode, or maybe uh, we can just little, little never. Dicky episode. <laughs> maybe we can just never think about it again. I don't know. Yeah, um, and that's the thing. It's like, uh, yeah, that might see more eyeballs might see that, but it's you know cotton candy sort of goes in and it's gone. And, and I think it's Wendell Berry who who basically says how you know you know maybe okay maybe this video gets people to sort of look into the science on on climate change and maybe they change their mind you know best case scenario changing people's minds does not matter uh, if if their position does not uh, lead to some sort of action so and what Wendell Berry says is how do we get from a position to a place of you know effective action yeah. Um, and that is a completely different question from how do we change people's minds um, because because having a belief and having you know holding an opinion that's a very different thing from changing how you live yeah you gotta you gotta change people's minds but you also gotta get asses out of seats right yeah. so um, I would agree with that so I, yeah, that'll pretty much wrap up um, the Eastwood episode. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll take a little time off from this and then come back to uh, another auteur episode. But for next week, we're going back to just looking at a single film. And this time we're going to be looking at a film that we both really like um, and that fits kind of more directly with th- this concept of, uh, you know, looking at... Um, Climate catastrophe, yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff, and it's uh, Take Shelter, Jeff Nichols's 2011 film starring Michael Shannon and uh, Jessica Chastain and uh, Shea Wiggum, <laughs> who I like a lot um, from Boardwalk Empire. Mm. Um, so we'll be looking at Take Shelter, which is uh, it's got a lot to do with climate catastrophe and a lot to do with sort of psychoanalytic principles and, and a lot of interesting stuff going on with it um, as far as like hallucinations and dream sequences and all sorts of uh, great stuff and some great acting from Michael Shannon the the scene that we'll talk about when he has his, his big outburst is super powerful and terrifying there um, is a storm coming oh, that's easily like, the best part like and he's really good at playing sort of insane characters but this scene is sort of his best in my opinion so next episode we'll be talking about Take Shelter um, so follow us on Twitter please at Anthropod Tweets uh, also episode will be available like all others on SoundCloud iTunes Spotify wherever good podcasts are had um, and I guess that's it that's all I got that's uh, fucking 1517 to Paris uh, made me feel like I have dementia. So, we didn't even get to talk about the fake baby. Oh, shit. <laughs> End of episode. <laughs>